welcome to another edition, a new episode of T Watches a Scary Movie. I, of course, am T, and we're talking scary movies. I appreciate y'all tuning in for another new episode. Remember, new episodes will always be uploaded to the YouTube page located right here every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's right, MST. I know a lot of y'all are uh, Pacific Time, Eastern Time. But hey, we're here in Colorado, so we go by the time it's local to me. That's MST. Every Wednesday, 8.30 p.m. Make sure to subscribe to the YouTube page so you can get alerted when new videos are going up. I do post other videos as well, too. Gotta get better at putting those up. But at least you know the new episodes are coming every Wednesday at 8.30 30 and also make sure to subscribe to the facebook group that's located right here this facebook group is where i can let you know about our watch parties that we have going on remember we got watch parties going every single wednesday after the show debuts and we do one movie sometimes we do two uh but i know that kind of that we're out of the holiday season so we got to get back to one be respectful of y'all sleep and everything like that and then on Saturdays, we have our scary TV show watch parties. Uh, for the last month, we've been doing uh, Spawn, Tales from the Crypt, Are You Afraid of the Dark, Creep Show, uh, The Stand. We actually just got done. We added in the 2004 Salem's Lot miniseries. And now that that's finished and we're just about done with the first season of Creep Show, we're going to have some replacements coming in. Looks like Black Mirror is coming along. And we'll find something else to slot in there as well. And sometimes we add a little bit more to that. Like uh, y'all know my love for Nickelodeon and Snick as well too. Um, so uh, this Saturday we might add some Snick stuff at the very beginning earlier on. For those of y'all that ain't got nothing to do and want to relive your uh, 90s along with me. So make sure to subscribe to both the YouTube page and the Facebook page so you're getting all the important uh, updates and info on everything that we are doing. So we're in the new year. And I had to think about some of the things that I actually wanted to stop and talk to y'all about in the new year as well. Because uh, we do have a lot of great episodes coming up. Matter of fact, I can let y'all know now we're going to have some special guests on the next few episodes of T Watches a Scary Movie that will become T and Friends Watch a Scary Movie. I'm going to have one of my good friends, Nia. Uh, who's going to come on the show. We're going to talk about the works of Stephen Summers. So we're going to be talking about Deep Rising. We're talking The Mummy and Van Helsing. Uh, Stephen Summers directed all of those films and makes some really, really good movies. I personally hate the shit out of Van Helsing. I think it's a terrible, terrible film. But alas, uh, it was time to kind of talk a little bit about these. And Nia on her podcast, which is totally awesome, um, talked about deep, uh, deep, uh, deep rising. I keep trying to say deep impacts, not deep, deep impact. That's the one where Elijah Wood tries to save us from an asteroid hitting the earth. But deep rising, she talked about it on her podcast uh, last year around the Halloween season. I talked about it a little bit as well. So now her and I, we're going to get together. We're going to talk about a few of his different films. And then I have my good friend, Mr. William R. Washington. One of the hosts of RBR Weekly Wrestling Talk. He's going to be coming on here in a few weeks. And we're going to talk about some horror movies with wrestlers in them. Because, of course, me and Will are big wrestling fans. And I got to keep that along with the horror thing. So we're going to talk some fun horror movies with wrestlers in them. Yes, before you ask, They Live will be a part of that list, okay? But when thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I tried to go along a, a, like a variety of topics. I couldn't think of much. And then I found out that uh, Scream 5 is actually set to release 
a year from now. Not exactly. I think it's uh, January uh, 15th, I want to say, 2022. But Scream 5 is releasing next January. And uh, keep in mind, I know we're still dealing with COVID and all that kind of stuff. And there are still film releases that are being delayed. Like, for example, uh, the Bond movie, No Time to Die, that's, that was supposed to come out last March, got delayed till last October or November. Then it got delayed to this March. Yeah, that's going to get late, delayed to this fall as well, too. So there's still a possibility that Scream 5 does get delayed. But keep in mind, January is a normal release point for horror films a lot of the time because there's nothing else for it to go against, meaning they make their money back pretty easily. So I don't know if this one will change. And because of Scream 5, I decided that it was the right idea to do a retrospective on the series, go through Scream 1 through 4. We're not going to talk about the TV show because the TV show is mostly bad, honestly. Um, watch it for research purposes, but I'm not wasting my time uh, talking about that here with all these fantastic films. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Scream. I'm sure you can see in the background my very wonderful Scream 2 poster. I absolutely love Scream 2, um, and we'll get into my love about that there. But let's go ahead and take it back to Woodsboro which is a very interesting line to start this off with because only 50% of the four currently released movies actually take place in Woodsboro. But who cares? You get what I'm going for. You know the story of the original Scream, all right? A young girl gets terrorized and brutally murdered by a pair of killers who taunt her with horror movie-related trivia. Now, I want to talk about the openings, really, of the Scream series first because... We start so strong in Scream 1 and even up to Scream 4, these opening scenes are like the, they're the recognition pieces, at least to me, of these films. Like, yes, you know, we remember certain characters, certain deaths and stuff like that as well, too. But I think one of the one of the biggest things, one of the best things about the Scream series are these opening kills. Uh, and it's funny, I'm looking back, seeing I got a signed, uh, signed photo by Skeet Ulrich, who... I was actually very much uh, responsible for giving the Denver Pop Culture Con, um, you know, just a couple of years ago. And then I have a signed Scream mask there as well. Uh, 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 ghost face mask. Love it. I, I, I love Scream to death. Um, but uh, when you think about horror films and those openings, uh, the thing was is that horror films could be like Bond films a lot of times. And you, you should know what I'm talking about. Every single Bond movie has like that opening action sequence that kind of sets the stage. So if you've never seen a Bond film, you're about to see him be a little suave, a little tough. There's going to be these really, really cool action set pieces. And a lot of the times they don't have that much to do with the rest of the film. Like it's just something completely separated out from everything else that's going on. Like there's, there's a piece in it that's going to come back up later. But usually they're not that important. It's just cool to see the action stuff that they do. And horror movies could be like that a lot of times as well. I mean, think of like the Friday the 13th series where they actually did a Bond opening with um, part six, I want to say, which is uh, Jason Lives. I want to say they do the Bond opening with that. Some of the Halloween films, hell, even the Lost Boys. Uh, but the problem is, is that with a lot of these kills in horror films, like for their opening scenes, they don't go too serious with it. Most of the time, they're, they're, we just kind of gloss over them and that's it. They're done. Scream didn't do that though. Scream took what could be a very much a throwaway scene in these films and made them so serious and so scary as well too. Um, regardless of the fact that Scream 2 again is my favorite in the series and not only that but it's one of my favorite horror films of all time. 
you cannot sit here and deny um, the the effect that the opening of the original Scream had on horror. It's an iconic piece of history uh, for so many reasons here that we're kind of going to unfold a little bit. I mean, think about it. The fact that it set this big trend of casting high-profile actors who their only role is really just to be killed off in the beginning, and that's it. You're trying to sell your shock value. And if you remember the original Scream, you know, Drew Barrymore was all over the promotional materials. They Like, I... What I didn't care that much, and we'll talk about that, but I didn't care that much about Scream until it got released on video, but when it was in theaters, um, you know, I remember hearing nothing except Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore, and it's like, all right, well, Drew Barrymore is definitely the most recognizable out of all these people in this film, because after that, you got Courtney Cox, who was just starting Friends at the time, and her name wasn't big enough for that to mean anything at all. Um, you had Nev Campbell, who had Party of Five, and again, same thing, not big enough to make any name recognition. And nobody else in the cast, with the exception of Henry Winkler, who played our principal, um, really had any kind of name recognition. So they were selling Scream in a lot of these promotional materials off Drew Barrymore's back. And man, was that fun because she was not the lead at all. And it's interesting because if you look it up, you find out that she actually wanted this role too. Like she was super interested in doing this and like, I'm sure a lot of people thought like, oh, you're gonna come play one of the lead roles. Like, no, she's gonna play an important role, but not the actual lead at the end of this. And think about the other names across the other, uh, across the sequels there. Jada Pinkett, Omar Epps, Kelly Rutherford, uh, Leif Schreiber, Anna Paquin, Kristen Bell, Lucy Hale, Shanae Grimes, Britt Robertson, Amy Teagarden. All of these actors and act, uh, all these actors um, played this same role that Drew Barrymore did in the original Scream film. They're there basically to sell how serious the rest of the movie is going to be. And, oh man, has it worked out in every single one of the films so far, no matter what you think of them as a whole. Because I know people, you know, they're down on Scream 3, some are down on Scream 4, but it's hard to deny that those opening scenes in all four of these movies work out really, really well. They serve the, the great purpose that they were intended to in the first place, you know? Um, and the first, the first couple of films, they, they really saw how brutal and mean our killers could be to victims. Honestly, there is no mercy going on at all. The second one actually touches upon, um, the obsession that we have with violence in the media because, you know, the crowd's watching as Jada Pinkett gets murdered, you know, she's getting murdered in a full, a packed theater that people are watching this happen. And nobody cares. Nobody cares at all. Uh, the third film, really, like, that was there to show you that nobody's safe. That, hey, doesn't matter that you, this person has been in the previous films and that they played an important role. They can be killed just like that. Who cares about it? And the fourth film, just making a joke about our love of sequels, prequels, and reboots. It's, it's so fucking funny, honestly. Uh, but these openings are are kind of the trademark of them, which is another reason I'm looking so forward to Scream 5, because I think all of us would be remiss to, uh, to not consider the fact that they're killing at least one of the core trinity of Scream characters between Sidney Prescott, uh, Dewey, and Gail. Uh, one of them is dying. One of them, minimum is dying or one of them is the killer in the next film and if neither of those things happen boo i mean it'll be good it'll be good none of them have been bad so far but we need that one of them needs to die one of them needs to be killed and unfortunately it very likely needs to be sydney or gail 
um, Dewey actually serves a bit more of a purpose than than having the two of the two of those those characters still there. So Sydney likely needs to die in the opening moments of Scream Five. Uh, but let's talk about the cast a little bit, about the characters in these films as well too. Um, so the writer of Scream One, Two, and Four, Kevin Williamson. Uh, you might not recognize the name, but you should recognize his work because honestly, he is one of the best voices out there for teenagers and young adults. He's written other films such as The Faculty, which is a T watches a scary movie favorite. Uh, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, I Know What You Did Last Summer. He wrote uh, the Dawson's Creek TV show. So the man knows what he's doing writing teenagers. And that shows so well in the uh, the first two Scream films and Scream 4, which, by the way, I'm not hitting Scream 3. I'm not saying bad things about it because I do enjoy Scream 3, but I'm leaving it out because he didn't really write it. Like, he wrote, like, an outline, and that was about it. Uh, but anyway, that's part of what makes the interaction with all these characters so good is that, you know, I you don't necessarily feel like you're, feel like you're watching a movie with exaggerated ideas of how teenagers and young adults act. Um Across screen one, two, and four, it's like you can actually think that maybe not the context of the conversations, like how many of us have actually sat down and talked about local murders with our friends, because most of us probably never lived somewhere there where there was all these murders like this going on. Uh, but we've sat down and had the same like context of con like not context, same kind of conversations with our friends in the past. And I think that's really cool that he was able to evoke like realistic acting from all these characters across three films that seem like, yeah, this is a normal conversation that you would typically expect, you know? Um, for example, Sydney herself, in the original film, like just showing this uh, apathy she has for intimacy with her boyfriend. And now we get it. Her boyfriend's the killer, ultimately, so it's a kind of a moot point. But, you know, her mother getting murdered changed her entire mental state. And we've all known somebody in like while we were going to school who went through like a death of a family member or a friend. And, you know, they were dealing with that in one way or another. And it's interesting to see Sydney deal with this in her own way that, yeah, she's got a boyfriend. She's been dating for a while, but ultimately she can't be she can't be bothered to think about all these other things with it because of everything that she's dealing with. You know, the way that she talks, the way she acts, even the way she dresses is like, damn, that actually seems like a real teenager, you know? And looking across the other movies as she evolves, you know, Scream 2, I, another reason why that movie is so good is because Sydney shows that she's still very reserved about everything that happened in the original film. You know, it's still scarred her. She's got PTSD from it, but it also shows she's trying to move on. Like, she's very realistic and she has a new relationship. She has new friends. She's still talking to Randy and everything as well too, but she's trying to go to college and move on with her life after dealing with like the worst situation humanly possible. And I thought that was a very, very good way to show her character evolving in Scream 2 that yeah, she's still scared. She's not necessarily on, you know, uh, on the level of like uh, Dewey or anything like that, but she's got some worries to her. And it's interesting because they, they try to portray Randy as the guy who's completely moved on, doesn't believe this has to do anything with them at all, and she's the disbeliever, but in, in truth, it's like they both are, because she's trying to move on as well, too, with her life, and not put too much in it, and she's forcefully pulled back, you know? Uh, in the third film, that's it. She's been through two, like, she's she ha, she her mother was murdered, she's been through two sets of serial killers, she's fucking done. 
So she goes into hiding. She basically locks herself away. She's living up in the mountains like the Unabomber, as they make a joke at, of. And, you know, she doesn't want to get involved in this at all. And she's forced to do it when the killer finds where she lives, finds out, like, her information is going to come for her. So I love that evolution. And by the end of the third film, when she's taken back her strength, she knows kind of where all this is going from. In the fourth film, it's, it's interesting to see that, okay, now she's back to the woman she wanted to be, basically. She's not letting this stuff kind of hold her back anymore. She's going to live her life. And I loved, loved the evolution of that with her. And same with her friends as well, too. You know, um, Dewey, I think, is... Uh, uh, Dewey and Gail are, are interesting pieces to where Gail works out pretty well across the first three films, where... The first film is just, you know, she's this bitchy young reporter who's going to do any and everything she can do to make a career out of herself, you know. And the second film, she's done that, but she's done it at the expense of all these personal relationships that she had even at the end of the first film. And it's about her trying to make peace with that and try to get back on the right side of things. Third film, you know, everything's kind of like shifted back for her. Like people know of her and, you know, like she's. She's had some exposure and some more success since all this other stuff has happened, but her life isn't what it once was, you know? And the fourth film is about her just kind of living a, mon uh, a monotonous, everyday married life with Dewey at that point, and now she's just bored and unfortunately needs another murder to happen to regain a lot of what she lost. Dewey, you know, is just kind of there. Unfortunately, Dewey probably suffers the most out of these films because... The first film, he was interesting. He's this young cop who really wants to help out. He's like all gun-ho. He's like an action star, kind of, almost. Um, and he gets his ass handed to him, obviously. What's interesting to note is that Dewey was actually supposed to die in the first film. That's the way it was intended. But because of David Arquette moving uh, during a shot they did, and because they loved him so much, that's why they brought him back. But in case you didn't know, Dewey was supposed to die in the first film. Uh, and then you have all our other extra characters, you know. Um, I love the way that, uh, like, like, even Tatum in the first film, that's that's your high school friend, okay? Like, you have somebody who's very vapid, they're popular, they're a little on the Bane side as well, too. But you know that for those close relationships they have, they put all that into it. They're, they're going to protect that person through thick and thin, which is how Tatum is with Sydney in the first film. We look at, you know, the second film to where it focuses on her college friends. And these are very much college archetypes. You know, she went and had to make brand new friends because all of her friends are dead at this point. And she's got a boyfriend. She's got a new best friend. You know, another friend that happens to be a serial killer as well, too. And the interactions with all of them are great. And I love giving some giving some notice to like Timothy Oliphant, uh, who nobody seems to remember was in Scream 2. That that was one of his earliest, if not his earliest film that he did as one of the killers in Scream 2. Um, so good in the role. So is Jerry O'Connell, though, as her boyfriend in Scream 2 as well. Fucking love Jerry O'Connell because I'm a big Sliders fan and he was in Piranha 3D and so much other stuff. Um, Scream 3 is interesting because the issue with Scream 3, I love Scream 3. But there's a clear issue with that film if you watch it to where um, a lot of folks didn't know. Uh, they didn't have a lot of shooting time with Nev Campbell. And so Nev Campbell is actually not the, the lead character of Scream 3. Dewey and Gale are actually the lead characters of Scream 3. That's why so much is based around them being in Hollywood because they couldn't do much with Nev Campbell. 
And thus so, the cast of characters, it's not about Nev Campbell at that point. It's actually about Dewey and Gale, that most of the characters we're following are actors or filmmakers involved in the new Stab movie. And I actually enjoy those characters a lot. For as much hate as Scream, uh, Scream 3 gets, those characters are super interesting because nobody has uh, really has a direct involvement to any of the things that have happened in Woodsboro or at Windsor College. Um, none of those things like involve these characters at all. So they're purely these, um, these super, uh, the superfluous, ah, God, they're extra characters who have nothing to do with it. And that's kind of interesting to see them getting targeted for it, especially when we find out who the killer is. Cause you know, it's the director of the film. He's killing his own cast. It's like, man, you're really going hardcore to direct your film here. Huh? Um, and even in Scream 4, you know, again, it's not about Dewey, Gale, or Sydney. That movie is about this new generation of kids dealing with this, even though they're all there. And we're back in high school. But it's interesting because back in the 80s and the 90s and even the 70s, when you portray high schoolers, you're usually using people who look like they're in their mid-20s, all right? It's early to mid-20s, and we have to believe that's what high schoolers look like. But Scream 4, you have all these young actors who were either in like, you know, 18, 19 or very early 20s, and they look like they're in their mid-teens. And I love that because it's so realistic that the times have changed, and you can't cast these people who look like they're in their mid-20s anymore. You have to ask people that look like they're actually teenagers. And the cast of characters, especially, um, uh, especially Jill and Kirby, in the fourth one are super super interesting because kirby rides the fine line of being a mix between tatum uh, be, uh between uh tatum and then um uh hallie from the second film you know to where like she's like she's kind of vain she's a little mean and a bit of a bitch as well too which she gets called out on but she's also incredibly loyal to jill and their friendship and everything that goes with that till it kind of bites her in the ass at the end of the film because you know jill's uh jill's the killer and uh, I think we're past my 10-year rule, so I think we're good on that one. And if I'm not, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's just the way it is sometimes. Um, and looking at characters like Ma uh, Matthew Lillard, Skeet Ulrich, and uh, Jamie Kennedy from like the first couple of films, so, so good. I mean, Skeet Ulrich, I have to feel that Wes Craven casted him because not only is he a great actor, but because of how similar to Johnny Depp he honestly looks. Matter of fact, you ever go back and look at some of the original promotional t materials for Scream, he had his mustache, which, he, you know, he had a shape of the film, looks like a spitting image of Johnny Depp in it. Um, but it's so interesting watching, uh, watching those characters because... Uh, like they sell their roles pretty well. I mean, Billy has obviously motivation for trying to kill Sydney is because her mother was the reason why her, why his mother left because she was sleeping with his father and that caused his mother to leave. So he had a real big chip on his shoulder about that and wanted to take it on Sydney and her family. Whereas we should actually be thinking about Stu, Matthew Lillard's Stu character a lot more because he's kind of the actual psychopath because he doesn't really have much of a motivation behind what he's doing. Like we do know he killed Casey Becker at the beginning because she broke up with him, which we get revealed in the middle of the film. But all the other stuff, he kind of plays it off as peer pressure at the end. But it's like, huh, it seems like you were a little too willing to go along with all of this. So the cast and characters across all four of these movies are absolutely fantastic. Now, 
in terms of the motivations of the killer. You know, we just talked about the first film. Billy wants to kill Sydney because of what his mother did or what her mother did. Stu's just absolutely batshit insane. And the second film, it's Billy's mother, Mrs. Loomis, who's there to just get revenge on Sydney. And her partner, Mickey, played by Timothy Oliphant, is also just like Stu. He's fucking insane. And I find that interesting that with those two movies and... Yeah, we'll get to we'll we'll get to Scream Four here in just a bit, but with those first two movies, um, they make it very clear that you know two of the killers are just doing this because of revenge. They have very personal reasons for doing this to Sydney, but that our other characters are only doing it because they're actually insane. Scream Three again, personal stake behind the killer. It was Sydney's brother, you know, or her half brother, basically. He didn't get any love from the mother, so comes back to enact that revenge against Sydney. Turns out he was behind the events of the first one as well that sprung everything into motion. And in the fourth film, it turns out it's Sydney's niece, Jill, and then her friend, uh, Rory? Robbie? I, I, oh man, I forget. I haven't watched Scream 4 in just a little, in a little bit now. But, um, you know, there's personal connections with all these killers. And I actually think it's more scarier when you think about their accomplices who don't have those personal connections at all. Because that means they're just uh, like bad shit crazy and killing people for no reason at all. Right. The music. Uh, we have a we're going to talk about music on a future episode of T Watch is a scary movie. But that is one thing that the first three screen movies did so so well honestly is that their soundtracks added in so much to the movie and um and, and adding to the emotional feel of it you know red right hand being the theme song of the scream series itself you know and that kind of being like not it was never played when the killer was actually doing anything at all but it's so interesting that that you know held up being the theme song for all four of these movies but then you have some other some other great tracks from it as well. Like uh, Scream 1, uh, they had a cover of uh, Whisper to a Scream, which was absolutely fantastic. Scream 2, you know, they did The Partridge Family, I Think I Love You. Scream 3 had Creed's What If. So music has a big relation with this series. And it, it's interesting as it evolves because the music of the first film um, it's a lot of like alt rock bands uh, back in the 90s and stuff that teenagers at the time absolutely would have been listening to. A lot of grunge, a lot of hard, uh, alt rock and everything there. The second film, we kind of moved more into like a lot more poppy stuff. Um, and that, again, very reminiscent of where everything was going to around 98, 99 or so. And then the third film is just like kind of like a top 40 kind of deal as well, too. So it's interesting to see the music evolve across these three films as well. Uh, in terms of scares, I remember being so afraid of that first film after I saw it, mainly because there were so many good jump scares in it. That screen mask, uh, the ghost face mask is so iconic. And we'll just pull this over right here. Um, this mask is so damn iconic, honestly, that I, I, I don't even know. I, I, I don't even know a good, like a good way to talk about this. I, I can't tell you any kids who did not want a ghost face mask, uh, when they were younger and dressing up for Halloween. This was like a top Halloween seller uh, for years and years and years. And 
It's so, so good. It like, and I get it. We have the Michael Myers mask, you know, you got Freddy's pizza face and stuff like that. But what helps sell your villain is their look, you know? Do they honestly come off as scary as they really should be? And Ghostface has always been a scary individual. Didn't matter who the killer actually was. Just the idea of this running behind you, popping out of doors and windows and stuff like that. And the fact that, you know, it's all flowy. Like you have all this material that just in the wind happens to flow like a ghost, basically. You know, that is what added to what made the Scream movies and specifically the killer so scary in those films as well. And there is a lot of good scares across all of them. Um, I don't know anybody that watched Scream 2 as a, you know, as a kid or a teenager and didn't think that scene of the killer following Gale in the recording studio wasn't scary because, like, that's that, oh, he's going to get her, he's going to get her. So damn scary, that scene. Um, obviously, the opening of Scream 1. I think the opening, the opening of Scream 3 is pretty scary, but I also believe a lot of the imagery they do with Sydney's mother in Scream 3 is pretty scary as well, too. Scream 4 didn't have a lot in there, but I also find it interesting that they kind of changed the characterization. Uh, Roger Jackson, who portrayed the voice of Ghostface in all four Scream movies, um, we know that obviously it's a voice changer, so that's obviously not what the killer sounds like. But it's kind of interesting to the, to hear and, and and get a different different voice for each time Roger Jackson's doing these killers across these four films. And I only uh, say that to bring out Scream Four because if you listen to the way that the killer speaks in Scream Four, he's mean. He and she are mean in Scream Four, and in the first three movies, it was still rather playful, you know, psychotic, but still there was a level of care to go along with it. Scream 4 doesn't do that. That the, Those killers, like when they're talking, are just absolutely mean and evil and scary. You know, they're just the absolute worst. I love the Scream movies. They are incredibly good. They're usually a good intro to horror as well, too, because there's no supernatural elements at all. And we still get a whodunit. Um, I feel that... Maybe not so much with Scream 1, but with Scream 2 and Scream 3, you get some good ideas and examples of trying to figure out who really did all of this at this point. And I, I love that about it because we've talked about it before that movies about serial killers or killers can go one of two ways. If it's like a Halloween or a Friday the 13th, we know who your killer is. There is no unmasking uh, to find out who our killer is. But something like this, I know what you did last summer, and there's a lot of other ones out there. We're trying to figure out who this killer is before we get to the end of the movie because it's fun to see, okay, so how did they kill that person when this was going on? Or what lies did they tell here to make sure they can get away with this murder over here? And um, Scream 2 is its another reason why it's so famous because for those of y'all who don't know, Scream 1 was such a success that they rushed Scream 2 and Scream 3 into production because the number one was so big was such this, this shift on the zeitgeist of horror films that they had to get into production fast to capitalize on it. And so there are multiple scripts out there for Scream 2. Now, as we know, the way the film actually ended was that the killers were Mrs. Loomis and it was Mickey. But there were iterations where Cotton Weary was actually a third killer in there. He wasn't doing any of the other killings in the film, but he was there to kill Sidney as revenge for sending him to jail. 
There were versions to where uh, Sydney's boyfriend Derek, as played by Jerry O'Connell, was the killer as well too. Where her friend Hallie, played by Elise Neal, was uh, was one of the killers. Um, there was even one to where I think Rebecca Gayhart's character was actually a killer as well too. There are so many different versions of that script out there. And Kevin Williamson has claimed that none of them are real, that they were just like there to like kind of shield it. I doubt that very, very much because there's so many elements in at least the script that I read that featured Derek and Hallie and Cotton being the, uh, the, being the killers. And actually, I think Mrs. Loomis might have still been a part of that too. It's been a while since I've read that script. Actually, yeah, there were four killers. It was Derek and Hallie, Mrs. Loomis, and Cotton in that version. And the script is still very similar to the original version that it's hard for me to believe that, yeah, this was never a real script at any time. Bullshit, it wasn't, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't feel the, like, I don't, I didn't hear anything about Scream 3 or Scream 4 having those issues at all, but Scream 3 is also super interesting because again, so much I'm sure had to be changed around because of how long they could have Nev Campbell. We've also talked about with Scream 3, how technically, uh, it's, it's set in the Jay and Silent Bob view skewerverse because if you remember Jay and Silent Bob had a cameo when they start going through, like, uh, going through the studio and Gail gets kicked out. Um, and I've talked about it, but I'll talk about it again. If you did not know, they were actually supposed to shoot the other side of that scene for Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back to where we would see like uh, Gay, uh, uh, Courtney Cox and David Arquette, uh, them going on set for Stab because they were there checking the movie out. And that brings another important part up. The fact that, that Scream is already very pop culture relevant, you know, they're touching on all these tropes that horror movies do, and they're even just directly acknowledging those tropes as well. Something interesting that came up with that is that they eventually made the movie Stab. So Scream 2, based on the book that Gail Weathers writes about everything that happened in the first movie, they made a Hollywood horror film on that that starred Heather Graham, Luke Wilson, and Tori Spelling, of all people. <laughs> uh, and they continued this up through Scream 4 because then they, uh, I think they're up to seven stabs by that point. That whole opening sequence is that they go through at least three of those stab films. Um, so I find it very interesting that they stayed pop culture relevant by highlighting that as well. That, hey, sometimes these horrible things inspire some really, really good pop culture movies now, too. Uh, but I digress. These are a perfect introduction to modern horror. If you were looking to show somebody horror films that are set kind of these days and something that might not scare the shit out of them, but it's still a really, really good watch, you start with the Scream series, honestly, because this is kind of the pinnacle of 90s horror. This is out, not even kind of. This is the pinnacle of 90s horror is the Scream series, honestly. And it still holds up to this day. Scream 2 is still one of the absolute best movies I've ever seen in my life. It's the best in the series. And it's one of the best horror films that's out there as well, too. And people are realizing that in the last few years that Scream 2 is so much better than the original for a bevy, 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 bevy of reasons that are out there. Which is part of the reason why in our watch party tonight, we are going to watch Scream 2. Because it's the best one. It's so damn good that everybody needs to really check that one out. And with that, that is the end of our talk here on Scream. I want to remind y'all again to make sure to subscribe to the YouTube page so you can get alerted when new episodes are going up every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Make sure to subscribe to the Facebook page 
where you can see we're doing our watch parties again tonight right after this episode ends we're talking uh, we're gonna watch scream 2 and this saturday we have some great stuff for y'all to watch in the watch party there as well but you got to join the facebook page in order to get the links for that and know when these things are happening so subscribe to those let me know about your experiences with scream all right let me know in the comment section here in the youtube video as well all right which scream was your favorite which one did you not like that much who was your favorite killers is there a character that you didn't like what did you think of courtney cox's bangs in scream 3 they're so bad they're so 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 bad why did they do that to her but let me know let's get some conversations going y'all again my name is t we've been talking scary movies stay scared